Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the podcast. We're cutting this one from my RV on the road in Pittsburgh. Just played a show tonight in Pittsburgh. Great crowd tonight. The second set of tonight's show was more new music than old. And that is a ratio. It's the golden ratio, if you will. We're going to go for that this whole year. It's going to be really fun. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Touchdowns All Day with John Barber podcast. This is episode 18. Hi. You know it. We made it here. We're going to 20. This is a special episode. This episode is the Max Dawson episode. Max Dawson is one of the original tour kids for the Biscuits. When we went on tour, we found that there's this little caravan of motherfuckers following us around. They had their their little vehicles, their shoddy-ass gross vehicles, and we were driving around in our shoddy-ass gross vehicles. And we were playing, you know, Chinese restaurants and pancake houses and and poorly designed bars and wetlands. And um, that was how we did it back then. We did long-form jams. One night you would go to the show and we'd play Afro Blue, and the next night we'd go to the show and we'd play some song that nobody ever heard before, which ended up being called Shimmy. And similar to that, tonight you went to the show and you heard a song called Anthem. You heard a song called Stars in the Sky. You heard a song called The Hero. You heard a bunch of new stuff tonight. So it's similar to that old pancake house type of vibe. And to celebrate that, we have on episode 18, Mr. Max Dawson with us tonight. This interview goes very deep and it's very long. So I'm going to keep my introduction short because we got to get down to business. I just want to let you guys know real quick, if you live in Syracuse or Burlington, Vermont, or anywhere near those places, so basically in the Northeast, we have four shows this weekend, November 2021st at the Higher Ground in Burlington, Vermont, November 22nd, 23rd at the SI Hall in Syracuse, Never Miss a Syracuse show. Same of the more of the same, lots of new stuff, lots of different stuff. Uh, come see the band, shows are going to be great. We also have a Florida run, which is going to have the benefit of all the things that we are learning in this eight show run with all the new music. And the Florida run is going to crush. So, December 11, 12, 13, and 14 from uh, Buena Vista, Florida. St. Petersburg and Fort Lauderdale come on the four show whip through the beautiful Sunshine State, if that is the Sunshine State, and get some sun and watch these things develop live. In the Max Dawson interview, he'll tell you what that was like back in the day, and we're going to do it again this year, December 11th through the 14th, and then New Year's 27 through 31 in PlayStation Theater in New York. And there will also be on 28 a confirmed Tractor Beam show. i got to get the venue for you, but it is confirmed. And then Jan 2 through 4 at the Riv in Chicago. So uh, come see some shows, folks. It's a good time. It's a good... It's a good day. It's a good day. 
special, special announcement because, you know, I said we were going to go to 20 podcasts, right? That was the, the goal. Hashtag touchdowns all day. Let's get to 20. Well, we have a very, very special guest on our 20th episode. Mr. Marvin Mark Brownstein will be joining us on the show. Long, in-depth interview with myself. And we will uh, we will have you all tuning in for that, I'm sure. It's going to be a great chat. And we are very excited to have Mark on the show. Uh, the Aaron episode was, you know, one of our best episodes yet, and I'm sure the Mark episode will not disappoint on any level. We've taken, the Facebook group has taken a bunch of questions. I think we have a ton of questions. Thank you guys for participating. We're going to ask those questions, get you guys some answers, and have a good time with Mark on the show. So we're going to cut that probably in the next week or two, and then we'll have that for you, I think, December 15th, that show launches, so mark your calendar. Um... Obviously, you guys know who Mark Brownstein is. Uh, some people might be saying, well, this episode's about Max Dawson. Who's that? Uh, he's the first historian for the Biscuit. So they were a little tour team coming around on the first tour with us. And they did a pretty cool little tour community. And they started, you know, collecting the tapes and monitoring the, putting the tapes together. So the historian kind of takes the tapes and stores all the best copies of every show and tries to acquire a copy of every show and tries to keep one catalog of everything that we've done. Max did that job for a while, and he did a great job, and then he passed it off to John Goldberg, who's done that job for a very long time. I'm sure you guys know who John is. We have a, uh, an, incredible, an incredible archive of Biscuit material because of the work that these guys put in. And considering we love going back into the archives... A uh, big thank you to those guys for everything that they do. So here we go. We're going to jump right in. Uh, real quick, we want to tell you about a new Osiris podcast for the Osiris Podcast Network, our network here at the Touchdowns All Day Podcast. They also have other podcasts. They have a new one called Let Creativity Flow, and it's sponsored by Splice, and you guys know that uh, Splice is very dear to me. It's a three-episode series exploring the uh, evolution of music and technology through the eyes of artists, music industry professionals, entrepreneurs, and journalists, the show explores the fall of industry gatekeepers like record labels, how musicians use technology to create hits, and the future of music creation and collaboration, which is lofty, but it gets there. Let Creativity Flow features interviews with myself, John Barber, and Aaron Magner of the Disco Biscuits, Steve Martozzi of Splice, Andy Weissman of Union Square Ventures, who is just a super gangster, the podcast is hosted by Amar Sastri, creator of the Anatomy of Jam video series. Visit OsirisPod.com slash creativity to check out this show, which premieres on Monday, November 18th. And I'm on it, so you got to listen to my episode at least. And you probably want to listen to the other guys' episodes because you're probably sick of my bullshit at this point. But we're all hanging on to episode 20. It's the greatest. Um, this is episode 18, and we are happy that you're here. It's a long interview. It's a great interview. Max Dawson. Max, also a contestant on Survivor, which I had no idea about this TV show. I never watched it. I don't know why. I just never watched TV for a forever amount of time. And then he tells me about it, and then I go to dinner at his house, and I meet like a bunch of Survivor people who are on the show. 
And then I go home and I'm like, yeah, maybe I'll watch an episode of Survivor. And now I'm like six episodes deep in Survivor and it's the greatest show. So thanks for turning me on to that. Let's get started, folks. Touchdowns All Day, the podcast with John Barber. It's good to have you here. We're mass communicating. We're mass Perfecta. So here we are, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the podcast. We have a touchdowns all day with John Barber interview with a very special guest. We have the one and only Max Dawson on the show right now. Hey, thank you for having me. This is a big honor. Big fan. It's, it's great to have you here. It's great to have you here. And uh, here is my neighborhood, which is very strange it's to find strange. out that you have been living around the corner from me. Uh, no one lives around the corner from me. I live in the middle of nowhere. Where do you live? I live in Topanga, ah. way out in the mountains. Horses, farms, vineyards all around me, kind of just out in the middle of nature. And then mm-hmm. I find out you live 20 minutes away. I live on the other side of nature. Yeah. Yes. Do, uh, do you go to Cafe 24 a lot? I've never even heard of Cafe 24. What's Cafe 24? Cafe 24 is the breakfast spot in the Topanga area, if you're uh, a Topanga person. Cafe 27. Cafe 27, yes. It just got, it. they just changed the name. It was something else until five yeah, minutes ago. It was 24. I, <laughs> I used to go to it all the time, mm-hmm. and I thought it closed, but then I drove by it two days ago, and I saw it's called Cafe 27. Yeah, there's some new owner thing, and okay. I went there with a bunch of people that were friends with the old owner, Ooh. so they just hated on everything. I felt yeah. bad for them because it was pretty It was pretty good. This is the local interest portion of the podcast. Yes. It's like, ah, <laughs> oh, that coffee at the gas station at the Arco at the bottom of the Panga Canyon Boulevard. Yeah, and then when you talk to Topanga people, they tell you about the app that you can only join if oh, you yeah. live in Topanga or something yeah, like that. They yeah. have an app. It's very exclusive. Are you not allowed to talk about that? Hey, let's just move on. <laughs> yeah, I get that. I get that. I want to move into Topanga so I can live in a place where they have their own app. For yeah, sure. yeah. It's very, it's very high tech. So it is crazy. I moved here in May. You have been living here for six years yeah. out here? Yeah, and I've been in Topanga for five of those years. Um Topanga is is sort of the hippie commune area of Los Angeles. You know, mm. it's like where Neil Young and the Flying Burrito Brothers and all of the 60s classic rock guys used to hang out and play. Mm. Um, it still has that vibe. A lot of like burnouts, a lot of ass casualties, geodesic domes and stuff like that. But also sure. a lot of artists and musicians and stuff like that. My next door neighbor is a musician. People around me, the, the guy on the other side of me is a producer. So there's a lot of creative people in, in, in that area. It's a good vibe. Yeah, I, I looked at houses there before I moved here, and every single house, because they know I'm a musician, 
So every single house that I walk in, they're like, oh, this is where Stevie Nicks lived. And this is Robbie Robertson's old house. And after a while, I was like, there's no way. <laughs> and a lot of them have their own recording studios, too. Yeah. So. And the recording studio is like a room next to the garage with some egg crates on the wall. Ah. It's very depressing. Yes. That could have been you. That could be me. So we have this place, which has no egg crates. So... um I, you know, we've been talking about doing this podcast for most of 1990, excuse me, 2019. You know what my mind is. I feel like very early on, you and I and Rich Steele started discussing this. And it's very interesting timing that I show up like three days after you guys announce the whole new tour. Mm, Yeah, that is The set break is over. The biscuits Mm -hmm. are back. It's very exciting. Like it's interesting. My social media has been blowing up with all of the Biscuits fans and all of the jam band music fans going apeshit. How has it been from your perspective? Have you been surprised by the response? Is it what you expected? Oh, it's way beyond what I expected. Everything that's going on right now is way beyond what I, what you I expected. You guys didn't know. We had no idea. We had no idea. I mean, so, we kind of have been enjoying the fact that there's a really solid group of kids who love the band. I mean, we've been playing for years now and I was literally making computer programs Yeah, and we were still playing shows and they were huge. And yeah, it's, it's a weird, when you really think about it, it's kind of like a time warp of some kind. Yeah. But there's this law of supply and demand. There has been less Bisco than the marketplace desires. All of these kids like patiently waiting for a Colorado run or, you know, new years or, like one of those other limited engagements, four or five nights that you guys do mm-hmm. all of a sudden you guys announce you're going to start playing again. And I swear to God, like, you know, Instagram, I follow all these, um, like heady meme accounts, mulberries, oh, memes, is it heady? And suddenly <laughs> every single post is like set breaks over and some sort of meme about you guys going back on the road again. Yes. So now here's, which the- is also surprising to me too, because <laughs> I don't follow any of those accounts. I just get the scent. You get I get back friends, to you. friends of mine send me the meme as if they made it. Yeah. Well, that's, that's, and that's fine. <laughs> like nobody's, nobody credits no, Mulberry's no, memes not. or anything. They just send me the meme. Like, look what, look what I made. Well, and I'm sure Mulberry's like, memes stole it in the first place. I, you know, actually, you know what? I don't want to cast aspersions on Mulberry's memes. It's a very funny meme Instagram account, but, but like that, that alone, dude. So I'm, I'm out of the loop. You know, mm-hmm. I'm current on Disco Biscuits. You don't Biscuits. have a meme Instagram account somewhere? Oh, no. I, I'm, I'm way up on memes. I'm way not up on the Disco Biscuits. I, oh, right. I like, you need to kind of catch me up on the last, like, I don't know, like 19 years. Because, no, a little less than that. The last time I saw you guys, I mm-hmm. think, was when you did New Year's in Chicago. I was living in Chicago. Okay. Trooper and Don and John Goldberg came out. Um uh, the Chicago theater, some theater. It was a theater. Like, uh, I feel like you went to a show many years after you had stopped going to shows. And, and it was a, a New Year's run. I, okay. I did the whole run because you were in Chicago. It was 2009, I okay, think. Okay, yeah, that sounds about right. And I think that's the was last Was that Auditorium time. Theater? Yeah, something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that was the last that time That was the I, random Max Dawson spotting. It's like, hey, Bagak. What's I'm up? here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and out of the loop since then, that's not to say I don't still re-listen to the same old 99, 2000, 2001 jams. Really? But like, I heard you have new songs and like, I think your new songs are the songs from 2002. Like, um, you have new songs like, oh wow, they have new songs like, uh, rock candy or like 42 mm-hmm. or like, and I, I know that's like, those are 15 years old. 
Mm. Yeah, we played those a, a lot. I'm a little behind the. I mean, like technically, like Jigsaw Earth and House Dog are still like the new songs to me. So I'm that way with Iron Maiden. <laughs> when I go to an Iron Maiden show, I only remember the first three albums <laughs> worth of stuff, and they play all this other stuff. But I mean, like, it, like I said, it's not to say that I stopped listening, but to me, your music was so deeply connected to a specific phase of life mm-hmm. and to a specific set of circumstances that um, it's hard to translate, you know? It's like having been there mm-hmm. and, and there being like Silk City or Legends Lounge or the Moose Lounge or the some, Pancake House, the Pancake House, the yeah. Crowbar, like the Blue Terrapin, like these like literally basements, mini malls, yes. churches, pancake restaurants. Buildings and, with door and no other foreseeable features. No stage. <laughs> no stage at all. Like the the light Carpet show. The light show was someone standing and flicking the house lights on and off. Right. And, and like to me, not to say that the music can't stand on its own, but it's like experiences like those were so fucking powerful that they ruined me for live music. So it's not just mm. like that I haven't like kept up and been on the road with you guys. It's like I barely go to concerts. Since I stopped actively following the biscuits, because how the fuck is anything ever going to compare to, you know, standing in the, uh, the, in front of the stage at legends lounge, talking to you and, um, Magner and having Sarah Papa come up and grab Magner and say, get on stage. And all of us looking around and all of us having taken the same pressy, all Mm. of us like having it kick in at the same time and knowing like, we got to fucking do this now. And it's, you guys got to do your thing. We got to do our thing. And that kind of sense of band and audience involved in this kind of communal process. I don't get that when I go see a show at the Rose bowl or even at a, at like the troubadour. It's like that, that sense of like there being that kind of boundarylessness between what you guys were doing and what we were doing is so definitive of the, this period of your musical evolution. Well, yeah, it's true. We did I literally hang out with everybody in the room. Yeah. Before we went on stage. Because there was no backstage. There was nowhere to go. We would, I'd be standing on the side, like the stage, the side of stage would be a, a huge speaker on a stick. Yeah. That was the side of the stage. And all I had to do to get off stage was just walk to the other side of the speaker and the stick. Yeah. And then, hey, it's conversation, conversation. And then I walk to the other side of the speaker and then nobody talks to you at all and they start shining lights at you. Yeah. And I realize that in most of these stories that I'm going to tell now, like the people involved in them are like moms of like 12 year old kids or something like that. So I apologize if I'm, you know, telling any stories that people would like to remain in the past. But I have like distinct memories of like coming to Mark. very California of you. (laughs) Coming to Mark and saying like, can I borrow the keys? So that Aaron and I could go into the van, mm. Trooper and I can go into the van and smoke a bowl while you guys were getting set up. And you guys just being like, yeah, whatever. Or like after the show, you guys coming to us and say, where are we staying? Yeah. And we're like, a, I don't know. That was a popular like, question. And finding like, you know, Annie Heller Gutwillig is going to let us all crash at her parents' place in Malibu. And the band and the fans are all just like sharing the same floor space, like 30 people crashed out on the floor after a show where there were probably 45 people. Sure. Yeah, it was weird that we did sometimes crash at the same places. And those were always some kind of basement or something where we were literally arguing over couch space. Yeah. 
I think I remember one of my first shows, it was at like a college dorm. And I asked the kids in the college if I could sleep in the, like the common room. Mm -hmm. And so like, it's like, you know, two or three in the morning after the show and I'm sleeping and you stumbled in with a chick looking Mm -hmm. for a place. And I was like, get the fuck out of here. I'm sleeping. And you were like, fuck. Like that was like, yeah. Was that Halloween? Like 1990 died or something. 1998. Yeah. I think I remember. UMass Amherst. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, dude. That's what it was. That was was me. I remember that. That was like my third show or something like that. So. Yeah. We we couldn't find anywhere to go. We walked around until nine in the morning. It was freezing outside. And we, uh, I just had to wait for them to come, everybody to come back to get into the van to drive to the next town. Yeah. So I couldn't leave. There was no Uber. I was literally just walking. There was walk. no cell phones? There was no cell phones. There was nothing to do. You just had to wait for people to come at the assigned time that they were coming back. I have so many memories like this. Uh, April 1999, that little New England run. We're at the, uh, it's this, this little club in the middle. Whoever booked that run should have been fired or probably was fired but like literally it was like a restaurant in the middle of nowhere it wasn't even near amherst or something like that i can't the route 20 club or something like that it was called and we in new york massachusetts we Mm. all got to the show so early that we all band and fans just sat around in the parking lot for like six hours Mm -hmm. um hanging out smoking weed and listening to tapes of the previous night's show that I had made because you guys had played Little Eye for the first time. You guys hadn't even ever heard it. So we were all like plugging my little dat thing into, you know, Tom C's, uh, you know, aux cable. (laughs) And I wasn't even the aux cables, that funny like cassette thing with the wire that came out. Right, yeah, yeah. And we're all sitting in the car and, and Lesser is like, raging out to the first little i guess it was still burnt at that point it was still burnt well it might have been yeah i think it was still burnt at that point i'm not sure when i don't remember when that trans transition occurred we did play it every night that week i remember yeah Yeah. um we had this policy at the time where we were like when we play a new song you got to play it a bunch of nights in a row i don't know if we can really do that anymore we could but i don't know if we, we don't really do that anymore, we like to mix it up too much. I like that when you used to do that because it was obvious to us that you guys were feeling out the song. Like, and you would right. do that with old songs too. Like one of the things I was thinking was there was that three day period in February 99 where you played Memphis three nights in a row. Yes. By the third night, Same Memphis thing. was a completely new song mm-hmm. and like you were a completely new band. And like, if you listen to those three back to back, it's like, a big rock and roll guitar solo. And then it's like, it's getting weird. And the third night it's like, whoa, it just like dissolves into an ambient jam mm-hmm. and sets a completely new direction for the band. And if people are worrying about like, Oh, they played Memphis last night. Like you, you guys are doing like research and development. You're like trying to figure out how to break the atom here. And like, you're going to keep doing it until you get it right. And I think people like fetishize a little too much. Like, a rare song or a rare set list or something like that. Like I'd rather listen to you play bird every night until you get it right and, and do it like in a new way mm-hmm. than like you having to feel like you need to kind of pull something out in order to prove to us that you're going to mix the songs. Interesting. I like that perspective. So you would rather us just play one song per set and then the next night 
Or no, play the same amount of songs. Play the, still the full nine or ten songs. But the next night, just do it again exactly the it's same. It's not even so much like that. It's like there are just periods I know or I knew that you or somebody, probably you because you wrote the set lists most of the time. Back then I did, yeah, yeah. That you were like, you had an idea that you were working through. And it might have been Memphis or it might have been um, a, a specific type of jam or it might have been... Um, uh, what's another example? It was, it was Run Like Hell. The end of Run Like Hell. Mm-hmm. Like at a certain point, it just became like, how are we going to get into the end of Run Like Hell? Like It just became like a re- reoccurring motif, a theme of like, what sort of journey are we going to take into that? And it, it just, if you're going every night or if you're still in school and like you're getting the tapes of every night and you listen to every one of them, you start to hear this like evolution. You start to hear a process. And there are people, it's really interesting. There are people who are doing this now on Facebook. Uh, there's this guy, Andy Bazani, and he's, he's writing like a paragraph about every show from 1999. He's writing like in-depth analysis and he's like tracing out like, he's like the, the Mr. Don from this night in February, you can hear the same, Barbara's playing with the same theme in October when he's playing, uh, you know, the second jam in Jigsaw or something like that. Like people who are kind of like hearing your process and that process, it requires like repetition. It requires you playing a hundred and whatever shows. It does. And with a limited set of songs Mm -hmm. and coming back and saying like, we almost got the Memphis right last night. Let's do it again tonight. Did we used to do that all the time? I feel like we had a thing where we played the new songs a lot, like every single day for a couple days. And then we would be like, okay, it's cool now. Like, Bert, we played it every day for that week. I remember that. And then we didn't do that after that. I don't know if we kept doing that at that point. Above the Waves, when you first played Above the Waves, you played it, uh, obviously, for the first time on New Year's Eve, Silk City. And then when the tour started up in state college you guys would either you would play it every night or you would sound check it every night and the sound checks i remember because you guys used to just let us hang out and tape the sound check and we would just be throwing down at the sound check with the house lights on and stuff like that and you or you would just play through the jam you know you wouldn't finish it but it was like you were sound checking but you were also still figuring out like what can we do here right because it was it was like a new toy you were like discovering the possibilities inherent in an entirely new way of playing. That was cool. Yeah. That song was interesting because it, uh, it had, it was the actual writing of the song and the way the band played the song were so disconnected. Tell me, what is that? Like how exactly the song had to be written really, really quickly because I was running out of time before new year's and I knew what I wanted the song to be as far as in the rock opera. I so knew. you're like, you're like, I need the second to last song, yeah. like the dramatic, con- like the. I need it to apex. be like the motherfucker for the whole set, and I'd already written a bunch of them. Yeah, and so I knew it needed to, and I needed it needed a big jam, and it was just about him swimming. You know, I was like, this is this is Coronado swimming. Yeah, right. So. I felt like there was that that was those were the three ideas. And then I was walking from the football field where I used to pace around 
to the 7-Eleven where I used to get food to go back to the football field. And I was singing just some random bullshit. And the above the waves going under, above the waves, like it's very swimmy. Yeah. And it was just like, I was like, okay, that's that's what I'm going to build the song on. And then I had to get that into the band and... I didn't really know quite how to do it. It was really Mark that figured out how to do it. I was just kind of singing to them like and like but I didn't know how to do that with a band yet cuz I'd never done it with a band. Like that kind yeah. of like triplets but not really. It's kind of like a world beat. And then when Mark put his baseline under it and added a couple of changes uh, that come like he changes the changes and the reason he changes the changes is because he was adding them yeah. on his own while I was thinking of the other stuff yeah he was like well this is cool but I don't want to do it too many times because I, I guess he didn't want to screw me up on what I was trying to do so he kind of put them in in like real delicate places and then at that point in time I was like okay now this is a real song now when did you incorporate what had previously been known as road song into that entire mix because you used to get up there in between like in fall of 98 or something like that. You used to just get up there and play that. Yeah. That song's that song was at least a year old at that point. How did that become part of above the waves? That song wrote itself that whole I have no idea how I wrote that. No idea. I just remember where I was when I wrote it, but I don't remember how I actually, you know, I don't remember exactly the process of to make that because it's a very much like something you would write on the actual instrument. Yeah. It's not something you would, you know, like songs like Jigsaw and the other parts of Waves, I'm thinking of them. And then we take the band and we try and approximate what yeah. I'm thinking of. Yeah. And if everybody's really on the same mindset, we get something really great. And if everybody's in different places, you get it just doesn't you, it doesn't come together. So, and you're going to get both situations all the time. But the question is, uh, you know, like for something like the road song, which is that little like kind of country guitar lick. Yeah. I don't remember exactly how, like, I think I just wrote that one night. I think what I used to do is I used to play acoustic into a little tape recorder. Then I used to go back and listen to the acoustic. And I think it was a lick I put in there that I then relearned the lick and then added parts to it and stuff like that because for me it's like when i play it on guitar it doesn't necessarily go to the part of my brain that's musical if that makes sense i mean musical is the wrong word if if i'm playing something on stage there's like i'm singing it and i'm playing it but there's a little bit of like injected consciousness in there Mm -hmm. what am i playing what's the band doing is there some place we should be going right now yeah is what I'm playing even working? Let me triple check what everybody's playing. There's a consciousness that you're trying to get rid of all the time, but if you get rid of it 100%, yeah. you, you're not, you may not play another song yeah. for the entire rest of the show. <laughs> you may not be asked back to the venue. But the, the, uh, what I used to do is I used to play things just on acoustic into a tape recorder, yeah. and then I used to go back and listen to those tape recordings. And once I listened to the tape recording... Then it would sit in like a more musical, melodic part of my brain. Yeah. And then I could just work with that without a guitar anymore. 
I don't need a guitar anymore. I'm like, okay, I played it that night. I don't even know really what I played, but I can hear it and I know kind of what it is. And then I can like on the way to the subway, I can sing the loop and add parts to it and change the harmonies and modulate it and then bring it back around. And then I go home later that day and pick up the guitar. And then I probably have to figure out one or two things, but I can sing the newer version of it all the way through. And I just got to figure out how to do that on guitar at that point. Yeah. So it's probably how that song happened. And then I was just waiting for years, I was just waiting for some other piece of song to need that moment. And Above the Waves was that song. I was like throwing it together. I was like, okay, I got Last this. minute. Yeah. Got, you've got Silk City staring down at you on the calendar. Yeah. You've got Wetlands. You've got December. You just have a few days left. And so was Above the Waves the last song to be completed for? No, Hot Air, Air Balloon was the last song. Okay. Above the Waves and Hot Air, Balloon, Hot Air Balloon were both written like within seven days of the show. Oh my God. Hot Air Balloon, the actual song, The Light of the Moon, that was done before I started the whole thing. Okay. So, but all the musical parts on Hot Air Balloon, including the flight, yeah. were all written like at three in the morning. I got a show in five days. For me, from my point of view, Silk City was like a record release. It was yes. like as, cl- it was as much of a good deadliner deadline for like a straight composer is what i fancied myself of as at the at the time yeah was like the biggest deadline you can have is like a debut of your musical work yeah and with like a live band and people and silk city was a club that however tiny it is when you go there at the time was a huge accomplishment for the band because it was the coolest place in philly to play well there was also a tremendous amount of importance placed on that night by the fact that that was the decision time for everyone in the scene to throw down their allegiance. Are you going to Madison Square Garden with Fish as you've gone every year? Yeah. Or are you breaking off? Are you part of this insurrection going to Philadelphia to Silk City? I remember people to see these randos agonizing over this. People like friendships being like damaged and people <laughs> being really torn up over like. You know, because you know how people are about fish. And and now people are like that about the biscuits. But at the time, to be like that about a band that plays in a diner or that, that plays in a pancake house, it was a pretty radical statement on our part to, to say, like, we're not going to go to this thing where, you know, our entire scene is going to be. We're at this new thing. And so that probably, if you were even aware of that, that probably added additional pressure because you knew that people like, I feel like Benji you know, like these luminaries from the scene were saying like, all right, fish, I'm going with the biscuits now. Right. I mean, look, that happens every year for, for both scenes of people. People go to fish after going to eight years of biscuits. People, um, I think Umphreys gets in that game too. But at that moment... Lotus has been in that game quite a bit. But that was a business. David and Goliath thing. It I was mean, a little bit like... It wasn't that, like you were going from... Yeah, because they were really the only... Yeah. non-pre-famous jam band, like non-92.3 K-Rock in New York playlist jam band. You yeah. had the Allman Brothers, who were already in arenas for years. The Dead were kind of not playing at that time. You had a bunch of Grateful Dead offshoot bands. And then you had Fish, who was this monster, to- biggest touring act in the world at that point. Yeah, and the Biscuits. And then the Biscuits, we were playing this little bar called Silk City. It was a diner. But it had a little stage and had some subwoofers. It was cool. And the, the rock opera was uh, always a really fun thing to do. Yeah. And we all were completely caught by surprise. Yeah, nobody knew that we were doing it. And all of a sudden it was like, 
oh, all of these weird songs that they've been debuting for the last, Fairy Moon, Bizarre Escape, Mulberries, The Overture. Oh, we, we've been we've been watching this unfold. Yeah, nobody figured it out. Yeah, yeah there's only eight people at the time, so or twenty people or something. <laughs> we did that now. I still have my program from that night. I Do found you? it when I moved. I, found, I have it somewhere too. Somewhere yeah, right those are collectors' items now. I I mean, we could just make new ones. Well, no one has to know. We need like it's an like old, like up a cheesy Doc Matrix printer or something <laughs> from back in the day. Ah, uh, that was so homemade, so beautiful. And that, the thing, though, that always was weird to me was I always felt like, and it was probably a little bit, um, you know, the drugs that we were on at the time and also just like the stupidity of youth. But it felt like we were, we, I felt like nights like that, it's like, I felt like something important was happening. Well, it was, it was, it felt important for us. We had to work really hard on it. For us as a band, when you're a band and most of the time you're just hanging out, jamming, partying with people, being cool, to be like, you know, executing on a larger scale art project like that, even though when the biscuits executed on it, like nobody really cared. It was just our little gang. There weren't like record labels were like, yo, we want to put that out. You know, yeah. nobody cared. It was too long winded and strange. But at the same time, for our little crew, none of that shit mattered. Yeah. So it was cool to be a part of the excitement of all that. However, none of the things that people care about today and people cared about back then, like to describe it to someone. You know, you, you have very little descriptions, except for the fact that, yes, there was a four a month, just song, 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 character, character. Who are, what are these guys talking about? Was that the most prolific time in your life as a writer? Oh, for sure. But it was, it, and, and it, was, it was because I was so broke. It was just lack of funds. You just had nothing else to do. I had nothing do. else to do. I, didn't, I was literally trying to figure out how to live on $8 a day. Yeah. Eight, and there were no distractions. $12 a day. There was no internet. There was no cell phones. There was no phones. internet, no was, cell phones. It was easier back then. Yeah. I'm trying to figure out how to get back to at least that focus now, or at least that like yeah. lifestyle almost. And um, it's really hard. The podcast makes it impossible. Yeah. I feel like the podcast holds that back. Really? Yeah, because I got to do this. This well, is something to do. This is a requirement. So yeah. I've tried to cut back on most other things in life. And I feel like it, I'm getting to that point where like walking around and just singing a song for an hour straight for no reason, not because I have to, but because I don't really have anything else to do. Yeah. And then recording it and having another hour to listen back to all that babble because it's babble. Yeah. Um, yeah. I feel like, you know, I'm trying to carve time out for that. Do you write better when you're, on the road or when you're no, I can't do anything on the road. I'm useless on the road, but I'm going to try and fix that with the next iteration of the biscuits. I'm going to try and fix that problem. But you were always on the road when you were writing hot air balloon. No. Yeah. But though the hot air balloon stuff was all done in weekends in 1999. Most of it was written when everyone left. Everybody else had plans for the summer except for me. Cause I had no friends and no money. Ah, so I stayed at the house by myself in the upper Derby. Okay. I, 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 I so just, summer 98, yeah. you guys didn't have. Magnolia went to the shore. Mark went back to New York. Sammy went to New York. Everybody was gone. Well, Jewish people go to summer camp. Well, yeah, they went to camp. In Maine or the Berkshires. They went to Apple Farm. Like it was really old. 
Stewing out dudes at Apple Farm. <laughs> they were counselors, CITs, but... Um, yeah, yes, exactly. Exactly. They didn't have to worry about clothes. They just wore the uniform. And I was stuck in the house by myself, and I was just, like, walking in circles going crazy, but... We're all over the place. If you can direct... If you could court insanity and direct it into something productive... Yeah. Great things will happen. Yeah. And most people out there, they, 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 they court insanity, but they don't do it in a productive way. No. Well, what, I mean, the way we used to say it is like Alex Rodriguez doesn't take steroids for the after party, <laughs> takes steroids for the game. Yeah. You know what I mean? So it's like when you court like a little bit of insanity to have. I was lucky when I was when I was doing that period. I had the concept of writing. It was very unique to me at the time. But, so but, but, but what was the motivating factor behind switching between writing a C to B and Mr. Don mm -hmm. boop where you're writing essentially kind of like nonsensical sort of Zappa esque playful lyrics mm -hmm. to writing something that's story based narrative and also like extremely indebted to classical composition. Well, I mean, the music is the way that to me, there's really very little difference between a C to B and above the waves. One guy's just better at it than the other guy. Okay. You know what I mean? And that's just years. Right now, I'm trying to figure out how to get back to that mode where I'm like overture. Overture is a, is there's three lines, do, 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 all those, all that weaving and stuff. Yeah. Like that, I just wrote in my head. And just scribbled it onto paper. There was no guitar there. So I was on one at that period, you know, and it was because I was writing a C to B and road song. It was because I was working on it all the time. It wasn't like something that I knew how to do. It was just something that if you just do it enough times, you just develop the skill. But did you, you at some point consciously decided I'm going to make a nine song? Well, I had the hot air balloon song. Okay, so it worked backwards. I had from... the poem for the song. Okay, yeah. I had that song was a, like a weird rhyme schemey poem that I wrote one night um, to those weird chords because I was just trying to write something Bob Dylan-y. So it's got a little Bob Dylan-y chord rhyme scheme. Yeah, you know, it loops around in awkward places, and the, and it was just like Dylan does that every day for breakfast. So one of the days that I was doing it for breakfast, Hot Air Bloom was written. There's 20 other days. Yeah, you know. Um, there's another one that that turned out to that I can't remember it offhand, but um, so that was there, and then I had the thought that you would just basically said, which is like, can I write goofy songs for the next ten years? Like, can I write 150 goofy songs? And I just felt like if I could find like something to talk about, it would be more fun to yeah. write lyrics about actual things and stuff. Then it would be to just like, okay, what cool interest. Like if you listen to like mindless dribble, you know, like the, yeah. the, the, the words together are very interesting, but like to do that over and over and over again, you know, it's just, it, it's not as fun. Like it was fun when I did it for mindless dribble cause it kind of happened naturally. But after I'd done that and then I was looking to write some kind of more eloquent stuff and then I wrote the hot air balloon and I was like, okay, well, this is a whole story here. I don't have to just make it this one little poem. I could actually write what where it comes from, who, who the people are. I could really go in on it. And so I was using it as a device, basically, just to just to get some work done. Like if you if you get to that stage where you're writing every day, you got to write lyrics every day. You got to write music every day. You got to 
write it potentially multiple ways every day because you got to write music multiple ways. You know, you got to do all these things. You just kind of like it's, it's the actual activity is more important than the quality of the execution. Sometimes it's like this podcast. Like I'm yeah. the podcast. It's just what I like about podcasting is you just podcast. You do it. Yeah. You don't worry about like making it perfect and all these little, little nuances. Yeah. And, and no matter what the mode of writing is, whether you're writing fiction, nonfiction, academic work, journalism, music, mm-hmm. The most important thing is consistency. Yes. It's building up that practice. Yeah. It's just your, there's a, there's a, uh, MMA trainer who summed it up. He was like, train at 60% and train twice as much. Yeah. And he's like, at the end of the day, you have twice as many hours of training. You're going to wipe anybody out of the, uh, out of, what is the octagon? You're going to kill anybody in the octagon because you have twice, twice as many hours training as them. And music is very much like that because you you like you already understand music you already know it like you can be better at your instrument that's dope you can be a better singer that's great all that shit you got to work on and then but like composing is the same thing like you're either composing all the time or what you're writing is is day one stuff there are some songs that came out of you feeling fully formed or they came up on stage and they felt like oh that's that's a finished product and then there were songs that for years you were tinkering with and switching parts around with, or that were changed. You know, we were talking about road song becoming a part of hot air below, uh, above the waves. My lady survives becomes Haleakala crater. Yeah. That uh, didn't work. Uh, everybody. I heard that we played it the other day. Haleakala. Yeah. That Haleakala is an example of a song that was written on the guitar directly. And I feel, I don't know. We played it the other day. It was, it was great, but I feel like Haleakala doesn't have that. I never was able to conceive of it deeply enough. You know, I, I didn't do enough laps on Haleakala. I did a lot of laps on Haleakala, probably more than on most of the other songs, but it just wasn't enough for the whole thing. You know, it just wasn't, it was still a ton, but it just still was like I ran out of time. Yeah. You know, and then sometimes you just have to work it out on stage. Sometimes you can work it out on stage with something like Haleakala, really hard to work out on stage because it's, it's too so much. Precise. You can work out Mulberry's Dream on stage. So what's a song that like surprised you in what it became from what you conceived of it as? Like that, you know. Magellan for sure. Magellan was the first one that was like, oh, I didn't think it was going to be that cool. <laughs> You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I think Magellan's a really cool song. It's very unique. When I wrote it, it was kind of like Neil Young takes too much Adderall and starts dancing around a little bit. You yeah. know, it wasn't it wasn't this like kind of fusiony song that it became. Um, but I kind of knew like, but it but it was like it, we knew it was going there because the whole improv is that whole thing. The melodies were all there. I don't know. Those those are. Yeah, a lot of those songs, like the deadline and the song are like combined in a really weird way. It's weird how art and deadlines yeah. are uh, are bedfellows, if you will. Yeah. Well, I was thinking a song like The Overture, which you were saying, came to you. You wrote it down, those interlocking lines. For the first 20-something times you played it, it was seven minutes long. And then one day, it had a jungle jam in it. Right, because that was the last piece, yeah. And that Jungle Jam feels a little weird as opposed to, like, the rest of the song. It was added, you know what I mean? That kind of stuff is, like, people 
to me, the song has a certain feel at certain points, and sometimes I feel it's like it's done, but you have to change it for the stage. And like, Overture's a great song. Yeah. You do want to play it. If it doesn't have a jam, like Eulogy, then you never play it. Yeah. Because it's like the people want to hear you jam on stuff. Was there, At least us. Yeah. You know? I, I feel like there was a moment, and you know, ostensibly we're here to talk about some 99 jams, but yeah. like there was a moment where there were still songs that didn't have jams, and I'm sure there still are now. When was that moment? I don't remember that moment at all. Well, like, you know, spring uh, through March of... When you guys left, mm-hmm. you know, you guys were in Pennsylvania, the East Coast, New England, whatever, down to Delaware the, in January 99, and we all said goodbye to you. And then mm-hmm. you went down through the South, you went through Texas, and... The bra- oh yeah, I told the story. The Brown the Crew met up with you in uh, in Phoenix, mm-hmm. the Cajun House. The local TV news anchor got on stage place. and started like humping your guitar and unplugged you in the middle of the jam. We played their their morning show that morning. Yeah, yeah, that was good. It was the only time we've ever played a morning show. We played Shimmy at six forty five <laughs> in the morning. Nobody was happy about it. No. They had no interest in us jamming. No. So we were like, no, we have to jam. Yeah. And they were like, this is a television show. Three, you have three minutes. Three and minutes we segment. refused to do it in three minutes. And we com- we like came around on, they let us do the jam, and then they just cut the footage. Cut to commercial, and yeah. then come back, <laughs> yeah. you're still in the middle of the shimmy jam. That's pretty much what happened. But when you left, uh, you know, Overture, Mulberries, uh, Bizarre Escape, didn't have a jam. Very Moon barely had a jam. We catch up with you in Phoenix, Flagstaff. We head up to Vegas together. Mm-hmm. Suddenly, like there's a jam in Mulberries. You, there's a jam in Bazaar. A few weeks later, there's a jam in the Overture. A few weeks into that tour, Very Moon is you know like a set piece song, like, and in places where we didn't expect there to be jams. It's not like you know like you just figured out how to break open any song. You figured out the point in almost every song in your repertoire on that tour and going forward where the jam would be. Yeah, we probably tried a bunch of stuff. Yeah. We probably tried something that didn't work one night, tried something that didn't work another night. Under the, the auspices of, like, oh, they're just jamming here, whatever. We were trying out. There's probably little melodies in there. There's probably yeah. things to set it off. And then if it didn't set off, we'd try something else. Did you, was there any reservations about, like, you know, you had your News From Nowheres, you had your Wets, you had your Afro Blues. At the beginning of the tour, you guys still used to play A Night in Tunisia. By the end, it would be like four song sets. It would be like Above the Waves, Very Moon Vasilios, uh, Hot Air Balloon, something run, Pygmy Run Like Hell. Like that was, mm-hmm. like everything was 25 minutes long. That was the formula, yeah, yeah. Did that was that like a hey guys, let's have a band meeting? Or no. No. just you just one day you wrote a set list, the next day, the next day it just kind of gradually evolved. Well, we just we had full set lists all those nights. We just never got to the songs. You just we just there's so many nights that we just bailed on a tune and it just kept playing. And we were playing straight dance music, housey dance music. And at yeah. the time People love house music now. House music is all over the world right now. At the time, we were like one of the few places in America where you could dance to four on the floor and have yeah. it not be like a Madonna remix or something really cheesy. And people 
didn't like pop then as much as they do now. People like the pop from then a lot more than they used to back then. Yeah. So people love Madonna now. They love Michael Jackson. They love Nirvana. People hated that stuff back then. And then people like today's pop more than we liked pop when we were there. Same like at at that time. So we were playing this like really danceful music. So we would get into those dance jams and the whole place would start dancing. Even people didn't know who we were. Yeah. And so we're just sitting that for a a minute. So it's kind of why the band. um, Hold on. We talked all the way to the music. Here we go. That's great. Um, All right. So sorry. We'll edit that out. No, that's good. So that was kind of why the band was getting popular, I feel like, because people knew. Like, how were you supposed to get the songs? We had no albums out. Nobody knew the websites. Nobody knew a tape trader. But people would come to the shows because they heard it was a good show. Yeah. So we would get into those jams, the whole room, and start dancing and going crazy. And then we'd be like, should we stop this and drop into some songy, songy stuff? And we tried that. And people would be, you know, they want us to keep jamming. And so we developed jamming every night. Jamming got the nightly approach to practicing where like in another band, it might have been dance routines, getting your nightly work. You know what I mean? But for us, we were just improving. Were you noticing? Because at that time, it was so obvious to us that you'd go to a show, you'd see some new people, Mm -hmm. and then we'd drive on to the next site. And those new people who had been there the night before, they'd be there again. Yeah, that was weird. That happened it was a like a you'd like spread the virus to a new town, and and then those people would show up mm. the next night. The next night, then those people would show up on the other coast. You know, and I'm thinking like yeah. that tour specifically. That I still feel happens. Like, oh, that's going to happen a lot in the coming years. I oh think. yeah, um, but that still happens even nowadays. You meet random people They're, all the time, and then they come tomorrow, and they're like, oh, I don't know, we just. Felt like a cool idea. I don't know. Here we are. Well, you guys used to say it's never too late to drop out of school and follow (laughs) the Disco Biscuits or to stop painting houses or whatever you're doing. Um, But like this, this, the the spring 99 in particular, like I, I was talking about how you guys left and when you showed back up on the West Coast and we all reconnected, then you guys came back to the East Coast finishing up that tour in uh, Pittsburgh, March 27th, there was a whole new crew. Like the, the scene had expanded like by a magnitude of four. There were all the Southern people. There was Beasley and Tim Danielson and all those people who had been there that night when you had broken Memphis open and who'd gotten completely fucked up by that and followed you guys for a long time. And then there was all the fish kids there was Paulie and little Hody mm-hmm. and all those kids who hopped off fish tour. So we got to graffiti or graffiti's lounge or whatever it was in, in Pittsburgh reconnecting with you guys. It's like, you've been away for two months. We've seen you once in that whole period. And suddenly it's like, this is a fucking movement. It's from silk city with 50, a hundred people to suddenly like 400 people or 500 people. It felt, and even though those numbers aren't, no, that would, that's a, a real fraction jump. of what you play to today. The guy from the crowbar pointed that out to me when we played the crowbar. He, he's one, I guess he was the manager at the time. And uh, crowbar sold out at 400. And the last time we were there, we did like 120 or 30. It was a good crowd, but 
probably half those kids were just Penn State kids going out for beers. Yeah. And the owner sat down, or the manager, whoever I was settling up with that night, because we used to settle ourselves. Yeah. Um, and I was talking to him, and he goes, you know, you guys just broke the 300 barrier. That's a real good sign. He's like, that's the hardest thing for the bands to do. They can never get past 300. Yeah. And so at that, and that was what you were talking about. We left, and yeah. then when we came back around all the we had the ability to do some things as a band at that point you know we could book a show we could get an opener at like on like a big concert we could play a festival it was it wasn't a bar band anymore at that point it was a club act yeah and it was a club act with a rock opera <laughs> yeah it was a club well there's a couple of those but very few very few. Should we listen to some of this Let's stuff? Let's listen to some music. So what do we got here? Okay, I, I brought three things for you tonight, and they're and they're things that I've loved for literally 20 years. The first one I want to play is from March 18th. This is a Thursday night in Minneapolis at a venue called Caboose. And this is a, like a little 1,000-seat place. Or seat. So the Caboose was like a little place that had a little low stage. It was like a foot and a half off the ground. And it was a long room, and you played on the side of the room, so there was like, it wasn't very deep, it was like there was an pl- area to your right where there was all this space, and it's just like a roadhouse, you that, know? It's a Minneapolis roadhouse. And that explains why you could hear beer bottles breaking throughout this jam. This is uh, the 42nd show of the tour. Oof. <laughs> let's listen to 42 here. All right, so this is Run Like Hell. After Mr. Don. So we've just played Mr. Don. It was very, feels like back in this time, we, we've been playing so many shows that we're just all sharks on the instrument. Like everything is so smooth, so fast. So many little tasty little phrases inside of the larger phrase by everybody. And you introduce this little phrase here and start playing with it. And so many, you examine it, you pick it up and you look at it from every single different angle, inside out, upside down. Left, right, under, above. It's funny because I know what I'm doing right here. My hand is tired. 
I was playing the previous leg that whip it did, 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 did like a real arpeggio, there's a lot of reaches in there. And my fingers are like burning a little bit. So you played it like 20 times fast in a row. And then this is like something I can just you're do. You're regrouping. Yeah. You go back into it though. You you yeah, you you space it out here, you give yourself some time to regroup. There it is. from the beginning yeah oh that's the lick we played in the middle there it's really framing that little airy section there Like back in this time period, we used to be so subtle about the decision to get serious about what we're doing in the jam. Yeah. Now it's like this whole thing. Everybody does all this stuff all together. It's cool when it all happens at the same time. But back then we used to slip into it like one note at a time. Yeah. Which is what we're doing here. We're bringing some changes in. Sammy's picking up a little bit. Yep. We like want to change, but we're not. Because you're still playing, you're going back and forth between the old pattern and then you're now getting into Run Like Hell. Thank you. 
And this feels like almost like a jazz band. Yeah. Sammy is just like barely tapping the ride. Like it's four on the floor, but it's this kind of weird Art Blakey jazz. This is now 11.48 on a Thursday night, 18 people still in the bar. Someone is screaming their fucking head off, losing their mind knowing what you're about to do. They figured it out. in Minnesota, they weren't. Maybe there's a couple people in Minnesota at the Caboose first time out. And then this right here is just today's EDM. Yeah. Every day, all day long, this part of the song. Play that melody one more time. You gotta do this again and play the melody. <laughs> we gotta do that one more time yeah. for sure. Could have doubled it a few times. Doubled everything else in that jam. Yeah. 
and then went away from it and came back around and they kind of dropped it at the high point. Yeah. Interesting. Really great rhythmic, like, slowdown going on between Mark and Sammy at the top of that jam. Yeah. Very, very cool and effective way to punctuate. What, what I was playing was like a pretty simple little melody. It was what those guys were doing that allowed that melody to be so cool at the top. And then when we were talking earlier about like when you get your chops together, you get to a level that you can't get to without the chops. Um, I think that the, the, those hits that Mark and Sammy were doing, and Aaron was in on them yeah. too, like the whole band was doing those hits. Those were Jedi Master chops that you get to on the 42nd show yeah and potentially the 10th run like hell how to make this bigger than the last time but it's so interesting to me listening to that then listening to it now you're on the one hand completely in your own world and on the other hand riding what they're doing and you're playing this incredibly repetitive intricate set of figures then you do the chill your handout thing. Then you turn your chill the handout thing into something that you intersperse with the more interesting figure. You the build of, line. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, and you can hear what happens there. And I still do this today. I'm playing directly along with the drums at that point. Okay. If I play along with the drums, then everybody else in the, I can chill on the drums. Um, for a while, like for a long time, because then I'm just playing rhythm, really, at that point. Yeah. And, you know, I'm doing it with a little melodic lick, but it's so tight, there's no real melody there. And I'm staying tight with the drums, and I'm making Sammy excited about what he's playing by doubling parts of it. Okay. And you hear Sammy get a little, like, kind of a world beat, jammy, flammy bit going on there, a little world beat flam. And it's because I'm hopping on those things, so that's us getting together for a minute. And it also frees up Aaron and Mark to say, okay, that's cool, I can now loosen up, I don't have to do, I can find something new to do. And it does turn into a whole nother thing at that point. Yeah. And that's just like an old trick if you're a guitar player and you have to play these soaring melodies and sections of the song is don't play soaring melodies the whole jam. Just mm. play drums for a little bit. All right, let's hear a, the next. Okay. This jam is 41099 Wrecker. Yeah. Which ironically, I think there was a Run Like Hell at this show, right? There was. Frog Legs. I Run love like that Hell. Run Like Hell. That's one of the. Uh, I love that Run Like Hell. That's one so of the cool. most beloved jams from that season of Biscuits. Yeah. I had a. Yeah, yeah. I really. I, we should listen to that at some point in time. All right. So let's check this out. This is Wrecker Theater Towns in Maryland. And this is the Homecoming Tour. This is the uh, Crowbar Chameleon Club Trocadero Wrecker. After you guys have been out on the spring tour, you come back to Pennsylvania. And play this. All right, so this is you guys haven't seen us in two months. This is for a lot of people, you know, the night before at the Troc, where you, you play Magpies for the first time. But that's most of the East Coast fans' first introduction mm -hmm. to the new Memphis, to what Waves has become, to, to what the Biscuits have become. It's, it's your friend's little sister who goes to summer camp and comes back with boobs. And you're like, what the fuck? Anyways, oh, okay. there's this. This is a C to B Smoothie King, and then this is out of the Smoothie King. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, Smoothie King we've already played. Yes. All right. 
Smoothie King, for those of you who have never heard that song, it's a jazz song that Aaron Magner wrote that was in the rotation pretty heavily at this point in time. Yeah. You go to a place with this that... I I remember being there. Yeah. I think this is... uh, This is the Saturday night, and everyone had gone so hard the night before... Like, what did we have left to give? Well, apparently we had something. You guys had something, too. And I remember being there and thinking, this sounds like something. Again, it's very jazzy, and I'm playing Coltrane, Miles Davis type of stuff. And Sammy is way dedicated to the ride in a super jazzy way. Yeah. You're playing like violin, like mournful. This right here. Yeah, it feels very strange melody line. But I like it's a different approach. I think at this point I'm just trying something fresh. Well, I want to see if you hear where you're going. And I'm really playing a game here where I'm just trying to follow Magner's harmonies as closely as possible. I don't quite know what he's going to do. And he's probably following me. And I'm trying to land tasty notes in my melody on top of what he's doing. Yeah. Where the fuck did that come from? I loved this melody at this. Like, I, this melody, I couldn't stop singing for a minute. I think Madonna was doing the movie I probably came out this week. But now you're shifting it back into a C to B. I like the previous melody I was playing better. I like the first time I played it. The, the rest of it, I feel like, I don't know. I was just like, oh, can I? It was more like that was maybe being a little selfish there. You know, just like, can I play this off the top of my head type of vibe? You got to do that every once in a while. 
and you know the whole game is playing something on the top of your head when something difficult comes down the pipeline you kind of got to accept the challenge you yeah. know what i mean Without hesitation, right back in. Yeah, I mean, Sammy's there. It's just sitting right there for you to take it. Yeah. It's it's part of the job is, do you take it now or do you play a little further? Like, we could have built that up quite a bit at that point in time. Yeah. It's difficult to try and figure out when to drop the change, when to drop the lick here and there. It's nice when you're in that, like, run like hell position and the band is doing something. That is like, just screams, this is the spot, hit it with us. And sometimes the band is like there and they don't even know it. And you got to slide it into a cool place. Yeah. Uh, I was in, I really liked that method for a while. And I think the other guys in the band didn't like it so much. Because they're like, why are you pulling out of the jams right when they get good? Yeah. And it was because I was enjoying finding like quick spots to put the licks. But you do sacrifice a potential jam there. So... Which is better, you gotta you just gotta make the call when you make the call. So with that, where at the height of that solo you slip into some Andrew Lloyd Webber theme from Evita, Don't Cry for Me, Argentina. Yes. Because it's just a melody that's amazing. It's just there, there were a couple times on that tour when you would do that. Yeah, I was probably playing that melody all tour. And it wasn't even just that melody, but it was like you were playing melodies from 80s pop songs. You played um, Ain't Nobody Gonna Break My Stride, Ain't Nobody Gonna Hold Me Down, Oh No. Keep that on moving. I probably played just off start... top of my head, too. I don't remember learning that. So you just... Avita actually had to learn. There was definitely a show where I tried to play it. Okay. And I whacked it big time and i walked off stage and i was like all right now i have to learn the intricacies of this because i was unable to guess it i'm sure you know in the pressure cooker if you will in the cube but that in that improvisational moment mm-hmm. something from outside comes in and you hear it or you see an opportunity to weave it in mm. am i or is it more... I think that felt like a drop-in. That didn't feel like that was on purpose, really. I think I caught that one lick because it was hear yourself perfect. Do you it? hear that like Latin twist on yeah. the original melody? Yeah. And then I made what I would consider to be a, a poor decision, which was instead of keeping... I had a melody. Yeah. I had that little Latin twist on it. That felt great. But then I, I heard the twist and said, oh, that's... Oh, I just added... You know, Avita till the middle of this melody. How cool. Let me play more Avita. You know, and it's a conscious decision. Yeah. And so you make a conscious decision. You 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 don't necessarily know what it's gonna sound like when you make a conscious decision. When you're playing something in the moment, you make a lot of conscious decisions. You don't know if it's gonna work or not really. If you're singing it through, if you're feeling it, it's probably gonna work. Yeah. Very, so. well, you're being really hard on yourself there, listening back <laughs> to that. Whereas I listened to that and I thought well, that was fucking brilliant. 
like in the middle of that really jazzy B re-entry, we got a little taste of the the melodies that are floating around in your head. Oh, I see. Yeah, for sure. Because that was that's what happened. Yeah, I probably stumbled onto a bunch of times on the tour, and yeah, and then it gets played. Yeah, it's hard to decide because I generally, uh, I I don't know. Maybe I should play more of the melodies on that reason. I I would pull out of them nowadays. I'd be like, oh, a couple notes of that. If I go to it too hardcore, then. I feel like we get stuck in it. Like now we're much better at actually creating the song. Yeah. Back then, those guys are looking at me like, I don't even know what you're doing, but you played this four <laughs> nights ago. Why are you doing that? You already played that melody, dude, you know? All right, so let's just roll with this. Um, All right. We'll fade it in. So this is Claremont, New Hampshire. <laughs> Charles and Heidi's wedding at the Moose Lodge. Yeah. On seven three ninety nine. This is back when the biscuits played weddings. Yeah, you could be hired bar mitzvahs, <laughs> quinceañeras. Yeah, we, this is the only one we ever did. That this is the only people who ever hired. We played another wedding, I'm sure. I mean, there were maybe thirty five of us there, plus like yeah. Grandma Edna and Uncle Joe. That's right. Staring That's right. at us, a bunch of dirty fucking rolling our ass off hippies twirling around in the auditorium at this moose lodge in the middle of rural new hampshire yeah i remember it it was a good stage oh yeah it was a good stage it's um, like a parquet floor like a high school auditorium yeah it's a high school auditorium exactly and so uh charles and heidi wrote the set list for you guys and uh it was like a pretty straightforward set list but this jam I mean, this is one that we still, Rich Steele and I still, we still talk about this one. All right. Well, I love that keyboard sound. It's, yeah. It's fantastic. You could feel the handoff starting to take place. You're stepping up. Aaron's about to hand it to you. I mean, I wonder how he's making that swirly sound. It works so great with the way Sammy's playing right now. Yeah.
That kind of sounded like we were we were playing a jam and we were doing like a like almost like painting like a a watercolor like a Monet type of painting around it where we were all kind of hearing the same jam but nobody was playing it. Now, I was doing this real like light three note thing and Mark was doing these descending things and Aragorn was going in between chords and these de- descending bubble lines or something. Yeah. So like the harmonic structure of a normal song was there. Yes. But nobody was playing yeah. anything normal. I like that stuff. And I like the guitar tone. I wonder, yeah. what, I wonder what amp I had back then. I mean, this tape just sounds great, too. This is Rich Steele standing 10 feet away from you guys with his microphones right there. And you play this like you've been playing this your entire life. Like this is like the beginning of a song. Yeah, the bass line that Mark's playing is very unique. Very unique. That chord right there. It almost sounds like he's playing the the bass with a bow. That right there. I love what you do right here.
That was Francie. Now, I faded it out here, but you guys wind it down and then find a completely new theme and go for like another 10 minutes before hitting the run like hell. Oh, wow. Really? Yeah, you do a complete like a Middle Eastern kind of like... So that was like middle of the jam. That like, was like the first theme. That's like definitely a two jam helicopters. Wow. Yeah. And again, that's at a Moose Hall, Claremont, New Hampshire, 35 kids running around. Yeah. I remember that wedding too. I think a seed of, or the Magellan Mm-mm. after there was there Magellan at that wedding. Uh, not in the second set. Maybe there wasn't the first set. Sorry. Hmm. The second set was just helicopters run like hell. Pygmy run like hell. Oh, or, nice. Sorry, helicopters. It ended with helicopters. Oh, so it's just one huge jam. Yeah. And Magner threw that was in the a bunch set of. List that they wrote? I, I don't even know. They probably wrote much more, but you guys played those <laughs> four songs for 75 minutes. If that's what they wrote, then they phoned that one in. <laughs> <laughs> well, they were old school fans. Yeah. Um, that, I, 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 I love that jam for many reasons. The nostalgia factor, I think it's just brilliant music. I think it's like a turning point in the sound. That day, you guys sound checked Svengali. Mm. You let us all in, and we were like, what the fuck is this? And of course, it didn't have a name at that point, so we named it. We named it Splatums. Right. And, and we used to have the tape of the little bit of sound check from that, and it was like, where are they going? Like, it was something we had never heard before. You were talking before about how summers are your writing time. And that show was July 3rd, 99. The last shows before that, you had done a few festival shows like in late June. And then you were pretty much off until like wetlands at the second week of August. And in that period, we got Svengali, we got House Dog, we got Piling It High, we got Haleakala. So summer, your writing time. I think I was just finishing stuff at that point because New Year's was such a thing. I probably had to start from scratch after New Year's to some degree. I mean, I yeah. had stuff lying around, but I had to start from scratch. And I think took six take six months to write the song while you're writing other songs to like, you have to sit with the different parts. I think in those days, especially, I was really careful to do that. Like, for instance, House Dog was like the third or fourth complete rearrangement of that song. Really? And it wasn't until the melody with the add one hits was added that any of the song made sense at all. I thought it was great because the lyrics were so like wackadoodle and cool, but that song was written in pieces and I kept trying to write it and failing. And then finally the guitar melody, which wasn't written on a guitar, that whole part was sung. And I had to learn it on guitar. And then later I was like, it's such a guitar melody. Yeah. But it just, the guitar was the last, the <laughs> last thing to find out about that part. I think I was even teaching it to the band that I didn't know how to play it myself. And I didn't want to look like an idiot in front of the band. <laughs> that, that, I actually remember that moment of being like, oh, damn, I don't know how to play this melody. And everybody's waiting for me to come in playing their parts. Yeah. And I came in with that, I think, or I probably, it probably was pretty bad the first couple of times I came in with it. Well, I mean, that was the song that infamously you guys played the first time at Wetlands and then came back right. a few songs later and said, we're going to do that again. Yeah. <laughs> and nobody even knew what you did wrong. I don't remember what we did. I don't think we did much of anything wrong. We missed like a one hit. 
We were being perfectionists back then. Yeah, but that's what we were talking about earlier. That that workshopping, like that you guys were letting us in on you were letting us in on the Svengali sound check. Yeah, we were kind of the experiment was taking place in the laboratory with the scientists, but you were inviting the public in to observe and be a part of it. Well, we weren't inviting you guys in. We just had no way to keep you out. <laughs> There's no security well. at these places. <laughs> Somebody's backyard, it's hard to keep the owner of the house away from the sound check. Um did you feel like that time though? You you were saying that you were kind of tying up loose ends, that there were like things that you had in progress. But it seemed like I don't know. I listened to that and then the, the shows that come after the new material. It seems like a, a a shift, another shift in the in the sound and in the evolution from even the shift that had taken place with hot air balloon songs. Did you did you feel like there was almost like a sense of you have to prove yourself that you can do something different or any kind of impetus to change after having spent so much time working on hot air balloon and, and fleshing out those songs on the road. What do you mean? Like after I, well, you uh, went hot air balloon and then the next batch of songs was Svengali jigsaw house dog, which were sonically musically very similar, just a little bigger than the other ones. Well, I mean, they were, so intricate, so many different parts. They were not obviously rock opera songs. They were standalone, but they had different sounds. You were incorporating dub and reggae. You were incorporating jungle. It was like a real stepping outside of, okay, we're going to play four on the floor trance and house. Yeah, we could have gone very trance at that point. I just don't think it, ex- we didn't really know how to do it. And uh, it felt like, the composing of the song, like writing the longer compositions was getting, I mean, you know, when you write stuff and you play it for people, they come back and they tell you what they like about it. You know, it is a very collaborative process, writing music. Because at the end of the day, if nobody hears it, did did it make a sound? You know, did you write a song if nobody hears it? And so people were giving me a, a lot and the whole band was getting, for all the songs, the whole band was getting a ton of feedback about the, musical sections i mean bert is has a huge musical section in it yeah um three wishes was done in that time so like we were getting so me and mark both were like well we got to write these you know this is the stuff that people are getting really excited about and every song had to have something like that every single one yeah and then i would try and write something different from the last one each time so like then even got hope which was a little further down, which was like trying to just go very, you know, like the the fugue was like a whole thing musically compared to the rest of the song. Usually the little music parts that I was tacking onto the song were like flushed out licks that went along with the song and I would add a couple melodies to it and make it cooler and stuff like that. You know, and then I got to the point where I was like, let's just write sections of music that are dope and then put them together as well, which is kind of what I'll probably do now. I like that method. I think the whole method works. It's just hard to, uh, it's hard to do something. The only things that are essential is the time spent on it and the, uh, you know, the, the like allowing yourself to be happy doing it. You know, you can write music, you can fucking hate yourself while you're writing music. I've done it before. You can hate yourself the whole time. And you can miss great stuff 
because you're like in a negative frame of mind and music you back then it was like i was so excited for anybody to care about what we were doing the fact that people showed up was so kind of outside of was never the plan yeah there was never any plan about acquiring fans in the dream you know what I mean? Like, oh, I'm going to write songs. A scene and, and like yeah, a logo. None of that. People will have tattoos. Yeah. And there'll be like a Facebook page. Yeah, like try promoting. Yeah. That was never in the play. That's not, nobody's like. There was a newsletter. Yeah. Nobody's like, I'm going to start a band. It's going to have a dope newsletter. Like nobody's ever said that. So I think those parts of it were, were you know, obviously necessary. And, and, uh, and like have like, they have a profound effect on you. You got to. You got to write the stuff that makes people excited. So fill me in on what I missed. Well, so, but we'll have to save that for another podcast. <laughs> the, the other 19 years? Yeah, we have. I mean, look, you can pick jams all day. You've heard them all. This was great. And we haven't talked about you yet. So everyone out there, Max was on the show Survivor and TV show, which I'm sure you've all seen. Um, I, we, I have to talk about that. I well, need to know about We that. can, definitely. We can talk about that. And then we can also talk about what happened to the biscuits in the interim years. Although I'm maybe the worst person to ask that question to. Um, but, you know, we, well, can t- we can talk about shows. We can talk about musical moments. And I can do yeah. what we're doing here, which is... Well, you can get me ready for the, uh, the, the new round of shows so that I can, you know, be like in the loop. And I know what I'm listening for. Yeah. And you can listen to them all for free on the YouTube now. It's so much easier than it was back then. We didn't even talk about that, too. The plight of being uh, a historian in the time of tapes. Oh, yeah. I mean, I could tell stories for days where I used to send someone in the crew or a fan out on the road with a box of DAT tapes, right. and, and they would FedEx those DAT tapes back to me, and then I would record them onto the computer and put up one like five-minute snippet of songs on the webpage, and people would try to download it for two hours just to hear one snippet of what you guys were doing out on tour like circa 2000 or 2001. So yeah, the fact that you can now watch biscuit shows live streaming on YouTube and then download a beautiful soundboard, like mixed recording of that show afterwards. It's like unimaginable to us who were, you know, trucking around with boxes of cassette tapes, sending blanks and postage, or, you know, we knew one kid who had a CD. Don Cody was the one person who had a CD burner. So we'd all send him blank CDs and he'd have to burn them. And it took an hour to burn one CD. Like that was the way that the, and still the band was kind of like spreading at a viral rate. And so with all the new technology, it was normal to do all that stuff. Now it seems absurd. It seems absurd. Back then it was like, Oh yeah, it's great. It's so convenient. Back then it was even convenient. But you guys going out on tour and what, how many shows are you doing between now and the end of the year? I think we have 20 to 24 booked. I don't know. I don't count them really, but I think somebody told me how many uh, the other day thinking that I would be shocked, but I feel like it's pretty normal actually. I mean, Christmas, I always play a lot of shows over Christmas, but that number of shows combined with YouTube and nugs and touchdowns all day. Touchdowns all day is a job. I mean, that's, that's going to be a, a that's going to be a, a spike in, that's going to be another leveling up in terms of the, the scene around all this. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see what happens. I mean, there's, it's possible that I think that everybody in the band is in a headspace right now as a group. I think that us as a group, and the way that we're working together right now 
I don't think that we've ever with Alan been in that heads in such a good headspace. I think that partially is what's exciting me about playing a bunch of shows is the band has just been in a really great space for the past year or two, really. And the shows I feel like are, are, you can hear it. And so I kind of want to, I want to see how far that can go. Like when the band's in a bad space, I mean, a lot of bands go to bad spaces. Disco Biscuit's no different. Um, it's difficult to have any, to, to, to do what we did in 1999, which is like have that kind of like the creationism of it all is even superseding the, the quality of the concert. Yeah. And you, so for you, it's a better concert because of that. Yeah. But to somebody who's there for the first time, they may not agree with you. Yeah. So we're better now, I think, at managing the, how to put forth a professional concert on a night-to-night basis. I don't think we were really that good at it back then. We really didn't know what we were doing. Oh, no. I mean, We didn't practice it. You know, I was writing all the time. I didn't have any time to figure out what the show, how to make an act, a show better. You know, we didn't have dance moves. <laughs> well, you were also contending with PAs that didn't work and shitty monitors and, you know, Lesser trying to mix uh, on a, a board that was put into a, an old Galaga game in the corner <laughs> of the Mango Grill. Like, crazy adversity that you yeah. guys were squaring off. You know, people spilling drinks on equipment and having to load your own shit in and out. We used to load our own stuff yeah. in every night. This is before and Adam and Chief, and mm. <laughs> this is before you had anyone. It was very pure back then. Yes. It was very pure. Five men, one van. Yeah. And execute, play their, our wacky classical techno, whatever it was, and then get out of there yeah. before uh, the then, owner pulls a gun on us, which yeah. sometimes you can't leave in time and the owner will pull a gun on you, let me tell you, folks. All right, so this has been a great podcast. Thank you for coming out to the Valley. Uh, anytime, buddy. And uh, we have more jams. So if you guys, if you folks out there listening, if you guys like what you hear, we have more from our first historian and super fan, perhaps, yeah. Max Dawson. And, uh, and yeah, Rich is uh, killing the podcast. So you guys have all this nostalgia to <laughs> recreate for the podcast fan base. Old men talking about the glory days. <laughs> Yes. All right, guys. Thank you so much for listening. We're going to hit the theme song and get out of here. Everybody have a great night. See you later. We're mass communicating. We're mass communicating.